Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrences. Concurrences is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrences is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Welcome to a new edition of Antitrust Code. This one is focused on joint ventures in the Americas. My name is Neil Campbell. I'm a partner at Macmillan in Toronto, and I'm one of the co-editors of the book Competition Law Treatment of Joint Ventures, which we are highlighting in our discussion today. The book was written by members of the Mergers Working Group in the IBA Antitrust section, and it's been published by Concurrence. This is the second uh, antitrust code podcast that we have uh, leveraged from the book. I hope that some of you enjoyed the uh, first podcast that was hosted by uh, my colleague, Alistair Morden, one of the other co-editors a few weeks ago. Today, we're going to speak with two of the major contributors in the Americas. And from uh, the U.S., it's a pleasure to be uh, chatting with Sonia Pfaffenroth, an antitrust partner at Arnold and Porter in Washington, D.C. And from Brazil, it's an equal pleasure to be chatting with Renata Zucolo from uh, the Matos Filo uh, firm, a partner in their competition group in Sao Paulo. Let's get started, Sonia. I think you drew the first straw, um, joint ventures uh, in the antitrust context. Um, the concept of joint ventures is a bit loose, a bit uh, free-flowing. Uh, people talk about different attributes, whether they be full function or not, whether they be concentrative, cooperative. Um, in the U.S., how do we know if we have a joint venture that is um, going to be treated as a merger in the U.S. system? So the, the DOJ and the FTC um, have very long-standing guidelines that are called the Antitrust Guidelines for Collaborations Among Competitors. Um, and, and those guidelines primarily provide guidance with respect to uh, collaborations, including JVs, that do not constitute uh, a merger acquisition that would not be um, analyzed under um, the merger laws. Um, and, and while the guidelines explain the differentiation as that the, the agencies typically will treat a competitor collaboration as a horizontal merger and analyze it under um, the merger laws if the if they give criteria. So if the JV participants are competitors in a relevant market, if the, the formation of the JV involves or the collaboration involves an efficiency enhancing integration in that market, if the integration eliminates the competition between the participants in that relevant market, and the collaboration does not terminate within a sufficiently limited period by its own terms, which is which the guidelines note depend on the circumstances, but sort of put a 10-year rule of thumb on that. Um, so in the US, JVs that are um, analyzed or mergers may be subject to notification under our pre-merger notification requirements under the, the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act if certain jurisdictional thresholds are met and there are not applicable uh, exemptions. The 
you mentioned full functionality. The, the concept of full functionality is not determinative under the HSR Act. So if the criteria are met, then um, the JV is, is notifiable, regardless of whether it's full function or non-full function. And, and typically, you know, in, in terms of assessing um, the impact of a JV under the merger standards, um, as with, with non-JV transactions, um, the agencies are looking at market concentration, unilateral effects, coordinated effects, entry, um, and efficiencies. Something that's important to note under the U.S. Um, regime, though, is that, you know, both the FTC and the DOJ, they have authority to investigate, for example, a JV that would be characterized as a merger, even if it's not notifiable under the HSR Act, they can they can investigate both non-reportable transactions and transactions that have already been been consummated. So it sounds like a fair number of joint ventures might um, have the attributes that would get them treated as mergers in the U.S., but some will not. And what's the legal um, position or framework for a joint venturer that is not joint venture merger uh, in the U.S.? So I would say both both in the context of a JV that's that would not be analyzed as a merger, but also with respect to a, a JV that's notifiable and cleared by the authorities, it doesn't provide the parties with protection from future intervention by the enforcement authorities um, under uh, the antitrust laws, under the Sherman Act, potentially subsequently under the under the Clayton Act. So, for example, um, if there's a situation where the JV parents compete clearance would not insulate them from liability under the Sherman Act with respect to information sharing, uh, sharing of competitively sensitive information, um, or uh, an agreement between a JV and a parent that competes with the JV um, would also still be subject to uh, uh, analysis under the Sherman Act unless, for example, the parent controls the JV. So if they have more than 50% ownership, then that would be a different consideration. And typically, if you're if you're looking at analysis under the Sherman Act, then if if you've got a restrictive agreement that's ancillary to a legitimate JV, then that restriction, like a non-compete, for example, um, that's going to be analyzed under the rule of reason under U.S. law. So the legality of, of the restriction would depend on the anti-competitive effects or pro-competitive effects associated with it. Okay. Thank you for that um, sort of scene setting. Uh, Renat, I'd like to do the same on, on Brazil and sort of understand at least at a high level uh, to what extent we may have some similarity and difference. Uh, and so starting with um, in Brazil, what uh, kinds of joint ventures get treated and analyzed as mergers? Thank you, Neil, and it's a pleasure to be here with you and, and Sonia. So uh, in Brazil, we do have a specific provision in the law uh, stating that joint ventures are a type of act of concentration. So uh, this is uh, written in the law. So to the extent that any joint venture meets an effect set, meaning that it has at least a potential effect in the Brazilian market, and the parents to the joint venture meet the revenue threshold, it will be considered a merger and subject to mandatory fining. And since our revenue thresholds, for those who are familiar with the Brazilian um, thresholds, they're low in comparison with other jurisdictions, I would say that a great number of joint ventures are captured by this uh, rule. So it's very common to have in Brazil uh, joint ventures being reported as mergers and subject to this uh, 
uh, clearance by uh, antitrust authorities. That's being said, I, I heard Sonia saying, and we also have a provision in the Brazilian law that allows uh, the Brazilian authorities to request uh, a mandatory filing, even if the revenue thresholds are not met. Um, maybe the difference here in, in relation to the U.S. is that the Brazilian authorities do have a deadline for such requests. And the deadline, it's one year uh, from closing or from the implementation of the joint venture. So if we pass this time lapse and you do not have the obligation or a requirement to file, um, the joint venture would not be seen as a per se illegal. But if you do have any kind of uh, harm to the market, there will still be the 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 possibility that this joint venture can be investigated under pure investigation to see whether there is any infringement to the president competition um, uh, law. And, and we have searched, I have never seen a precedent of this specific situation of a joint venture being uh, investigated by Brazilian authorities, but again, it, it's possible. Okay, thank you for that. Um overview, it does seem that you are merger focused, but uh, it's interesting to look at these uh, transactions and a little bit more as uh, merger transactions. And Sonia, I'll come back to you and you mentioned uh, a little bit about um, the possibility that uh, you get a reportable merger um, in your um, Hart Scott Rodino Act um, notification regime. There's been a fair bit of news about changes in that regime of late and maybe you could uh, just uh, discuss briefly what the implications there might be for um, people who are looking at um, joint ventures that may be reportable mergers in the U.S. Yes. So last summer, the uh, Federal Trade Commission announced proposed rules that would uh, significantly expand the information that's required to be provided with the initial pre-merger notification um, in the U.S. The notice of proposed rulemaking is um, over 100 pages long, uh, so it has a, a lot of detail about uh, potential additional information that the agencies would require, potentially more relevant with respect to JVs or uh, companies that are um, looking to transactions, looking to participate in transactions that also participate in JVs. Um, the requirements include expanded requirements to provide information regarding um, minority holders, other types of interest holders, expanded reporting requirements with respect to both the controlled entity, minority-held entity overlaps, and just more generally for notifiable transactions, the, the revised rules, if they're adopted, um, would require you know, information regarding officers and directors, information about other boards on which they sit, narrative descriptions of horizontal overlaps, of supply relationships, of labor markets, um, expanded information about prior acquisitions from, from both filers going back 10 years, eliminating the current um, $10 million thresholds, um, information about subsidies, respect to certain foreign entities or governments, information about categories, employees, OSHA violations. It's it's quite significantly expanded. Um, and so the the estimation from the FTC is that, you know, currently the average filing takes 37 hours and under the revised rules, it would take 144 hours um, for a company to to complete the requirements. I think 
uh, our view is that that for many transactions may significantly underestimate the time that's actually required. So in particular, your comments about minority interests and some of those interrelationships sound like they will um, have implications for parties involved in, in joint ventures uh, uh, over and above uh, some of the other general points you talked about. I think, uh, let me go back uh, now to Renata and get in a little deeper in terms of uh, of cases, because I think you've had a couple of interesting um, cases dealt with as merger joint ventures in the, the regime in Brazil, in particular, I think, involving some environmental uh, sustainability issues. And um, I think those would be interesting to talk about it, if you can give us a little bit of an overview of uh, some of the learning from these recent cases. Yeah, sure. Um, we had uh, two very interesting uh, recent cases. And uh, as you mentioned, they both uh, were related to environmental uh, uh, initiatives by, by competitors or by companies uh, within a given uh, industry. So the, the first one was uh, a case which we'll call uh, Catena X. This was a joint venture. Um, and, and the parents companies, so the shareholders to the joint ventures were co companies in within the automotive industry, such as BMW, Volkswagen. Uh, you, you did have other auto parts, um, 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 entities such as ZF and others. And they got together and they formed this joint venture. And the purpose of the joint venture was to exchange um, information and to have some kind of technical cooperation in order to implement ES ESG initiatives, which are very important for a lot of industries, but in the automotive industry, I think this has an, uh, um, an, a special uh, concern. Uh, so those companies, they formed the, the, the joint venture. This was reportable in Brazil as a merger. The merger was reviewed by uh, uh, our general superintendents, which is the first level of review. The review wa was very much focused on two aspects. So the first one was whether uh, there would be any market share increase. And the answer to that was no, because there was no concentration uh, among the core activities. So this was a pure collaboration joint venture. And, and the second concern, which was reviewed by the general superintendents, was whether this uh, technical cooperation could create any kind of standards that could be used in a discriminatory way. And the answer was also no. So the case was clear uh, by the general superintendents. But uh, as some of you may know, we have in Brazil the possibility of one of the commissioners at the tribunal level to request a second review of the case. And this happened uh, and in this situation. So the, the merger case was sent to the tribunal. And during the review at the tribunal level, a lot of concerns on the information exchange were raised. There was a lot of discussions on what kind of measures the, the, the parent companies could adopt in this case. Uh, there was even, uh, based on the public records, apparently there was some negotiation between the parties and, and, and the tribunal. 
but in, in the end, there was no, not a consensus on what kind of measures could be adopted to avoid uh, such a, a, a high level of exchange of information, uh, according to the Brazilian authorities. And in the end, the deal, which was a global review, it was blocked in Brazil. So this was a, a case, it was ruled uh, December last year. And then on June this year, we had a similar situation, different industry. So uh, some commodities companies such as Cargill, uh, Louis Dreyfus and others, they um, decided to incorporate a joint venture which uh, had the aim of building and providing a software service for all the supply chain in the food and agriculture um, um, industry to uh, track the, the, the supply chain and have some kind of standards on the measures uh, regarding sustainability. So this was the aim of the, of the joint venture. As in the previous case, uh, case uh, this was sent to the general superintendents. The general superintendents raised some questions about um, whether those standards could be discriminatory or not. The answer was uh, no, and the transaction was cleared by the general superintendents. But then another commissioner asked for a second review of the case. And as happened before, the case was sent to the tribunal. And once uh, it reached the tribunal, uh, according to the public version of, of the decision, uh, the parties to the joint venture provided a very robust and, and complete antitrust protocol to deal with the information exchange uh, for the JV. So within the JV and between the parties to the JV, and they also uh, uh, provide uh, the governance rules of the GV that will show that no discrimination will be put in place in relation to the parties to the JV and to third parties who could hire the service provided by the JV. And in the end, uh, the tribunal decided to clear the transaction, not subject to remedies, but based on the assumption that uh, the, the antitrust protocol and the governance rules would be put in place. So we kind of see some kind of upfront uh, behavioral remedies being presented and uh, to the to the Brazilian authorities, which allow the case to be clear um, without any remedies. So this was the, the, the whole cases uh, recent regarding the this topic. Um, thank you. It's fascinating to see two similar cases and the different results. And very interesting to see the focus on um, the information sharing issues. And I wonder, Sonia, if I can uh, come back to you and, and talk about the issue of information sharing, which I think is a lively issue as well in the U.S. right now, and uh, um, what uh, joint ventures need to know about that uh, in the U.S. Yeah, and it's quite interesting to hear Renata's um, case descriptions. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it is a lively topic in the U.S. right now. Um, you know, not specific to or not limited to, I would say, to JVs. But um, earlier this year, the Department of Justice withdrew its support for 
these it was a, a a set of policy statements from the 1990s that specifically related to healthcare markets but um they they included certain safety zones regarding information sharing that had been relied on for for quite some time across industries not not limited to healthcare and in withdrawing those statements the DOJ you know focused on the information sharing and and specifically characterizing them as overly permissive on subjects like information sharing so previously um, the the safety zones that had been articulated there regarding, for example, you know, industry exchanges of, of of information would not be challenged, you know, absent extraordinary circumstances if they were they were managed in a certain way, you know, managed by a third party, making sure that data was stale, that it was aggregated, anonymized to prevent leaking to a, a specific source, and part of the articulation by the government of the concerns with the the existing safety zones was that the proliferation of data and the potential to use AI and, and data analysis to, um, you know, to disaggregate what might otherwise be uh, anonymized and aggregated data was one of the things that, that they pointed to in calling into question the, the continuing viability of the previously articulated policies. And so, you know, the government's view that was articulated was that this is in modern markets, it's a case by case approach. And so I think, you know, from a practical compliance perspective, the, the withdrawal of that guidance without its its replacement by superseding guidance has has introduced, you know, uncertainty as to where the government's focus might be with respect to future enforcement, um, with respect to information sharing in any context. Thank you. Um, interesting uh, times, for sure. Renat, I think you have one other recent case that's interesting in terms of uh, behavioral remedies. If there's a chance to hear briefly uh, about the implications of that, that would also be uh, very interesting since there's been a lot of activity at CADE. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Niu. Uh, there were other cases, but let me, uh, I'm cautious about time, so let me talk about a case that we call the Simba case. So this was a joint venture that was filed for clearance back in 2016. Uh, it was a joint venture formed by a Brazilian channels, so TV channels and content uh, producers that uh, built this joint venture to provide services for the media sector in an attempt to, to decrease costs of, 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 of those services. And back in, back in 2016, this was a very complex uh, merger. It, it ended up with some behavioral remedies. And one of the remedies was that the, the, the GV could last for six years. So what happened is that then the parties have to file again and ask for an extension of the joint venture. And this time they asked for a 14 years extension. And during this new review, uh, uh, Cadi decided to to look at the market before the first uh, clearance, between the first clearance and the the, the second um, request for 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 the extension, and and they so the Brazilian authorities realized there was not a lot of concerns on on a lot of things that in the previous clearance was indicated as a possible concern, but they were still concerned about the fact that you have a lot of competitors and big, uh, what we call operators, 
getting together to, to form a JV that will provide related services to those uh, companies. So the behavioral remedies here, which were now negotiated and, and agreed uh, with the Brazilian authorities was that the JV could last for another 14 years, but they would have the obligation to negotiate with third parties. So the JV cannot only negotiate with with their shareholder with its shareholders, and uh, they have to give uh, uh, the same um, commercial conditions to small and medium-sized operators, which was a way to avoid. Uh, not only discrimination, but foreclosure effects are on this. And there is also a provision that the JV cannot charge higher prices to the third parties than they charge to its uh, shareholders. So again, another interesting case uh, regarding joint ventures and among competitors. Thanks, Renata. I think that we are at time for this uh, edition of the Antitrust Code. Uh, I want to thank you, Renata and Sonia, both for having a chat with me today and for sharing uh, your insights into some of the complexities and some of the recent developments in both your jurisdictions affecting uh, how joint ventures are handled. For listeners, I hope you found this discussion interesting. And if you have, the book is Competition Law Treatment of Joint Ventures. It's a full-on guide to uh, the competition law a treatment of both merger and non-merger aspects of joint ventures in 22 jurisdictions around the world, and it's available from Concurrence. Uh, with that, let me uh, wish you a good uh, day and uh, hope you will join the next edition of the Antitrust Code. Thank you. You listen to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrences. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrences website, where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter, at Competition Loss, and join the Concurrences group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.